Welcome to The Spawn Chunks, episode number 140 for Monday, May 10th, 2021. My name is Joel Duggan, and joining me as always is Johnny, a.k.a. Ironclad Pixel Rifts. Hello, sir. Hello. <laughs> You've got to be ironclad these days. There's a lot coming at you. And uh, we've had a lively discussion in the render distance about my backyard foxes, Joel's dog walking adventures, and all manner of things in between. If you're interested in hearing more about the stuff that we talk about in our casual chats before the show begins, you can get that from patreon.com slash the spawn chunks. Joining at any level there gets you access to an RSS feed that includes the render distance. And sometimes we talk about Minecraft in the pre-show sometimes we just talk about our own lives but there is always plenty of minecraft chat in the main show so joel what have you been up to in minecraft this week well i actually split my time between a uh, snapshot world that i've been playing for the last few weeks and of course my game time on the citadel uh the citadel was pretty straightforward i didn't build anything new uh i had uh, made a couple of towers and attached a couple of things built a new rampart in uh, last weekend this weekend i spent inside everything I just thought, you know, before I move on and completely forget that these are giant hollow boxes, I should probably add things like stairs and pathways and texture the floors and just kind of do the things that you don't take the time to do sometimes when you're quickly kind of like getting the form of something down. Uh, you decorate the outside and then you kind of go in and say, okay, well now I have to do something with the inside. Uh, it was a lot of fun. I've actually developed a bit of a uh, shorthand for building staircases and railings and I really like spruce trapdoors for, for railings as opposed to fences mm -hmm. uh, they just kind of give you a little bit more wiggle room to stuff to move around putting things like lanterns hanging from trapdoors uh, trying to light things up it's not perfect it's not 100% spawn proof but like there might be one or two spots in the whole uh, the whole of the towers that might spawn a, a creeper or two but um, I'm usually pretty you know conscious when I'm running through these pathways uh, to, to look out for them and uh, the fun kind of result of all of this is that now there's a way to like, there's a couple of different ways to cross the river to go up and down in different places. So I've got a number of these pathways that allow you to just, without jumping on your elytra and zipping around and doing all that kind of stuff, you can actually just walk through the town and get to different levels and get to different places, uh, including the keep, including a place that I forgot that I had a path to. Like it was, it was really kind of a, a nice realization that as I'm layering different doors and different staircases in i'm getting myself a whole bunch of different paths so you can take one of different you know six different ways to get to the same location in the city which is it's a lot of fun when you're you know building something this size that starts to come together with that kind of like almost like a spaghetti cave interior really if you yeah. want to compare it to what's going on in, in minecraft this week i think um, it's so it, it's really cool being able to build up layers of a town like that because you can also mm -hmm. work in some idea of like a class system if you want to go that route into like the kind of social history of your town like the lower regions of the city are usually the ones that people have kind of been built upon and you know priced out of certain areas and like more kind of higher regions leading up to a keep are always going to be like the richer areas where people can afford to be you know in better built houses better defended that kind of thing so yeah it's, it's always really neat and and you, you think about like which paths some people would use and there being more kind of thinner alleyways and then the people who have trade will want the larger roads so they can get their merchandise in and yeah i, I think as soon as you've got a little bit more of a dynamic feel to a town like that it immediately kind of implies a lot of stuff about the society that's living there already 
I've had a lot of people ask me about like, you know, what's the lore? What's the, you know, that kind of stuff behind the town? And I don't really have a lore, but just like you said, I have a history in mind. Mm-hmm. I have a like, well, this is the rampart. So like these staircases need to be something that people with bows and arrows can quickly run up. You know, if they need to get up to the top of the wall, it needs to make sense. You don't want them running miles just to get up to the top of the wall. You kind of want it to be as straight a shot as you can. But then when you get into the other meandering pathways, you're like, okay, well, now we can get into the spot where a meandering city street would make more sense in the market, you know, where you're not trying to get down the main road and up onto the ramparts as fast as possible. Uh, so that kind of stuff has, has definitely, you know, influenced me. And I like uh, adding inside decorations, uh, not necessarily anything really complex, but just little things that you walk by that make sense in these towers, like a barrel of gunpowder, which is just black concrete powder with a bunch of trapdoors around it, you know, mm-hmm. uh, chests around. Um, I have the advantage of having um, a texture pack that has in my opinion, a nicer looking oak chest, but then also trap chests are spruce colored. So I can have a couple different colored chests around, which just kind of makes things look a little bit more, you know, kind of medieval. Um, but really it's just been a lot of um, trial and error and trying to get things to line up and remembering different shorthand for like staircases that are like one or one and a half blocks wide in some cases and uh, all that kind of stuff. The hard part is trying to, it, the hard part is sacrificing certain things that you like so that you don't bonk your head is yeah. basically what I've I've learned is that it's like, oh, that's a really cool looking design. And then you go to go up the stairs and you're like, oh, even though I'm not hitting my head, it feels really claustrophobic. So I kind of want to add something in there. And again, spruce trap doors have been my 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 very best friend <laughs> through <laughs> all of this. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I worry that I might use them a little bit too much, but like just they're just so useful and versatile in a lot of ways. Yeah, I think player scale always ends up being like a stumbling block, no pun intended, mm-hmm. for uh, yeah. some of some of the uh, the builds you want to do. Especially like if if you're working from a scale that kind of you know makes sense for the types of builds, the types of material that you're using, and then suddenly you realize, oh wait, I've made this too narrow to use from a video game perspective. Those tend to be like at odds with each other in in certain respects, and the only thing you can do at that point is either like deal with it or just rescale your plans entirely and then you just find little compromises that make things work along the way yeah it's and it's been it's been fun to kind of like take a break from like what what big vista am i trying to design like what what other things am i doing i did start a new build on the weekend but it just it didn't go very well so i don't i don't really have anything to say about it i'll probably talk about it next week when i've got a chance to finish it but um the other stuff that i've been doing in the snapshot has been just more of the same kind of survival early gameplay Spending about 30 minutes or so at the beginning of every stream mining, trying to get more diamonds. We found six over the weekend, which is mm-hmm. not a lot. Yeah. Um, but I'm also not like spending hours and hours and hours um, strip mining. Like I'm doing some selective branch mining. I'm also going through ravines and caves and just like, you know, if I don't find anything in the first 15 minutes diamond wise, and I thought, all right, well, I've got another 15 minutes of this mining run. I might as well just go look for cave iron, cave copper, coal, like the kind of things that you just need a lot of in early game. And uh, I was also spending a lot of time on a mob spawner because I keep on dying. <laughs> the ravines are cool, but my gosh, they're dangerous. And um, there's been a number of times where I've just died either fairly or uh, unfairly. And um, so we haven't really gotten to any enchanting yet because every time I get close, I die and I lose all the levels. So I did work a little bit more on the um, the mob spawner, which is the first time I've really done a water flushing mob spawner. I've done water flushing like crop farms and stuff before. And it took me a while to sort it out. And I actually didn't really finish it on stream. We got it mostly working. Um, but there was a mechanic that I queued into uh, near the end of the stream. And I wanted to kind of pass it along. So um, 
I was doing this mob farm where the water comes into the corners and it pushes everything into a two by two hole in the middle. And we were having issues where the initial redstone clock, which is just a hopper clock, and I remembered how to do that on my own, by the way, I was impressed. Um, I then had all of the water kind of come out of the dispensers at the right time. It's a tower of dispensers with water buckets with observers that are facing, you know, the, the dispensers. Mm-hmm. And I put the clock at the bottom and it worked. Everything kind of came out and then it everything got sucked back up. But then things started to go hairy and I couldn't figure out why. And I figured it out like at the tail end of my stream, but I had been streaming all day and I just didn't have time to fix it because dinner was telling me it was time to go. And what was happening was uh, instead of powering this from the top down, I was powering it from the bottom up just for, I just thought it might be aesthetically cooler looking, uh, save me from climbing all the way up to the top to put a clock on the top of it, that kind of thing. And what was happening was when the observers receive the redstone signal, or rather when the... um, uh, dispensers receive the redstone signal they um, dump out the water the observer sees the water powers the dispenser above it and it goes up in a proper chain when the dispensers pick the water back up they have an empty bucket in their inventory and they make the click and the click is something that the observer sees and then the observer sees that the water has also disappeared so the the, the observer double powers which double flicks the uh, dispenser above it which then double like it just it becomes an uncoordinated mess the first time that the dispensers all pick up the water and so uh in hindsight i realized that all of the farms that i was looking at just for as a quick reminder about how this worked they're all powered from the top down so that the observers are not looking at the empty space where the water goes the observers are observing the um the dispenser yeah. not the empty uh, not the empty space so they always get powered just once then the observer powers the air block underneath it and that then triggers the dispenser which is so weird have, because that's yeah. that's not like the most intuitive mechanic and i think i made mm-hmm. the same mistake when i did my first mob farm that was like this with the diamond shaped platforms where yeah you you don't think that an observer should be able to power a dispenser if there is a block in between them and i think that's again down to quirks of java redstone more than anything else Mm -hmm. yep but i believe there might be a couple of things you could do about that if if it was you you could in theory put a block there if it's a block that can be waterlogged and would then allow for the water to spread outward from it it isn't going to like you know hog the water all to itself and, and block everything or not allow the water bucket to be dispensed in the first place but yeah it's it's a weird system to get used to but it definitely avoids the problem of the observer yeah ticking twice and then that doubling the observer above it and then you've got the observer at the top that's ticking sort of 16 times before it actually yeah. stops what it's doing that and that's what happens essentially they click so often that they then have like the same effect as like a burnout torch where they just stop randomly so then instead of having like all of your water out or all of your water in, you've got a floor that has four dispensers with two water sources and none on the other corners or vice versa. Like it is, it was a real mess. Um, I never thought about water logging a block, uh, like putting a fence post there or something would, I don't know if that would change the state of that block. It would probably still be waterlogged or non-waterlogged. So I think I'd still have the same issue. Yeah. Um, my solution is basically just, I have to move the clock to the top of the thing, which mm-hmm. is no big deal. You can't see the top from the, you know, from the desert where I'm playing anyway. So it's not a huge deal. 
uh, I just thought that it would be cool to have the controls closer to me. And um, rather than having, from a design perspective, I didn't want to have anything outside of this leading up to the top. I just wanted to have, you know, the underneath side of it. So if I was to put the clock, if I put the clock under it, it means I don't have to climb out around the the mob spawner. But it, either way, I mean, the, 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 the principle is working. We did get a couple of spawns. We didn't see them fall, but we did, we did witness them coming down. So I'm also going to play around with either hay blocks, honey blocks, or even water, um, because it would be nice to have the items automatically go into some sort of item stream. Not going to, not going to like sort them, but just to have them go into a different chest without having to have a dropper, like constantly clicking when you're at the farm, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. uh, will be nice. So we'll I'll have to mess around with that. But, uh, I did, I did get into some, some, um, 117 mechanics. We found enough dripstone to create a dripstone farm. Uh, it is slow yeah uh -huh. with a capital slow um and uh, well that's because there's only i think there's only four or eight blocks of dripstone with water above them uh and i only have like five pistons i think underneath it and uh one thing i ran into and i don't know if this is just anecdotal um i've been trying not to go to the wiki to look up stuff i'm trying to discover as, as i can in game to kind of convey more of the experience here on the show and the stalactites from the top were not growing with pistons next to them. And once I removed the pistons, they started to grow. And um, they also started to distribute stalagmites along the bottom, which is uh, a, a bunch of blocks at the bottom that are within nine blocks of the top. And what what's happening is that I have everything on a timer on a um, daylight sensor. Mm -hmm. So a couple times a day, whenever the sun either goes up or comes down, whenever the daylight changes, um, I think I've got to change to a subtract comparator so that it's only doing it like basically sunrise and sunset. The pistons kind of punch once and, and push off whatever dripstone is there. Because what we thought was happening was the timing of the, the pistons was too frequent and it was interrupting any kind of growth tick that the dripstone might have. Because when we first built it, it was like, basically not working despite you think it would be mm -hmm. um and at the time i didn't have a lot of observers so i it, like using a timer with a um a daylight sensor was the more efficient way to do it uh, but even now that we know it's working and we're only really harvesting the stalagmites on the bottom we get something like two dripstone an hour maybe four um obviously you'd have higher rates if you had a bigger farm but you have to build up enough you know to to build another block uh, and go from there. And I've got more thoughts about dripstone later in the show, but but that's essentially what we've been doing. I found a couple of axolotls so I can breed them now as soon as I can get some fish. Um, so that'll be interesting. I might try to set up like a a glow squid farm or something because glow squids are still they're still spawning in water like under Y sixty three. Yeah. Um. So I might be able to just put, you know, uh, a glow squid farm, uh, a, a big tank of water with a couple of axolotls in it, and they might they might kill the glow squid and then I might be able to just passively get some glowing. I don't know. There's a bunch of stuff I'm going to try now that I'm starting to get access to 117 content. I think that's good, though. It's it's, it's nice to kind of drip feed you the mechanics, kind of literally, I suppose, in this case. And uh, <laughs> yeah, j just slowly adjust to some of this stuff that's probably going to be uh, a, l a little bit more in demand once the update arrives for real. Yeah. What have you been up to, man? So I've spent most of my time lately on the Don't Die Hardcore SMP, which launched last week and is into its second week now. 
and I have spent most of my time out in the end. As I mentioned last week, I think uh, ZloyXP and I both travelled out to the end without having fought the dragon for the first time, and we set up, having raided a couple of end cities, we set up a base about 3,500 blocks out in the end islands, and spent a lot of time just building up some stuff there. I'm working on a base that's kind of in a um, in the same style as the Bolivian architect Freddie Mamani, who I've talked about previously, the Neo-Andean style that he works with, and it's been really fun to work with Endstone as a, uh, wow. a, a kind of majority building block. Yeah, and the, the shaders in the snapshot that will be in the show notes, in the screenshot rather, are... Um, uh, what are they called? Complementary shaders. It's a fork of BSL shaders that has a really nice aurora in the background in the end that I saw a couple of other people using and I had to snag that one for myself. But um, either way, I've, I've built something that looks like either a hotel or a bank and I can't quite decide which, uh, but it's <laughs> it's a really fun build and uh, yeah, Zloy built a kind of you know, more cyberpunky looking city kind of vaporwave aesthetic with purple blocks and end stone. And we ended up farming snow uh, from some of the stuff that people had thrown through the end portal and then we'd rescued from the end platform. So the time came on Thursday for the group to arrive and fight the dragon, but we'd pulled a bit of a sneaky one. And before they came through to the end, we had mapped about 18 end cities with ships in each of the directions that weren't the direction we traveled because we'd already raided a bunch of the cities there. And when everyone got together and fight the dragon, I swooped in on Elytra, kind of threw a few arrows and helped a little bit. And then as soon as they were like, right, let's go raid the end cities, I put down a shulker box and I was like, I have maps <laughs> that will show you where to go. Uh, wow. And, and I, I, I wanted to sell the maps to people. Um, I think people weren't really super prepared for it. I kind of wanted to make it a surprise, but then I was like, give me some diamonds. They were like, we don't really have diamonds on us. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it was mostly just all in good fun, and I would have kind of given the maps away to people if they'd asked nicely, but it was mostly just so they could avoid the drudgery of bridging out and searching for elytra on streams and videos and you know all of the stuff they were making at the time because it's all content creators on this right. server and a few of them were streaming the dragon fight and then i've done it before where you've gone out to the end and you've spent three or four hours just bridging around not finding anything or finding those pitiful end cities that only have like one stalk coming out of a single base and then there's nothing else really there's no elytra that lets you kind of travel a bit further afield so I thought I would maybe kind of, for a couple of diamonds chucked in my direction, sell people uh, the ability to just go out and find one of those and then have the freedom to do what they wanted after that. Um, so I thought that was kind of a fun a fun concept. <laughs> it was a, a little bit wheeling and dealing, but uh, hopefully a few people ended up with the, the maps in the direction that they wanted and a few people teamed up and once one of them had a light tray, they would go out and find the other cities for the other folks. But... It was uh, it was fun, and I've decided to keep my main base on the server in the end and continue the build that I'm working on, move some villagers out there soon, and probably a few other passive mobs as well. And we're going to do a raid there maybe towards the end of the month, uh, and it's only going to last for a month, and then the server shuts down again. So it's uh, just a an opportunity to kind of cut loose and do a bunch of you know stuff for the sake of it and for fun. Nice. When you're building out there, like I think about things like that when I, I see things in this really nice screenshot that you shared about the aurora or just the feel of everything and like shaders in the end and everything's so dark and so everything lit from below looks like super cool and ominous. Uh, do you find, uh, I noticed the amount of torches that you have around, 
I, I want to do a sci-fi build and I'm, I'm really torn between building on a mushroom island, which I think would probably be the better way to go. Uh, or in the end, which of course looks like space, but you have Endermen everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and I don't know what the solution would be other than trying to have some sort of like, um, uh, like a spawn blocking farm or mechanism or something to try and reduce the amount of Endermen that would eventually spawn, you know, everywhere on your, on your build in the end. Because uh, I don't really want to put carpet or string or like stuff on everything, right? Yeah, Zloy ended up doing a torch grid, which is what you can see in that screenshot. Yeah. And that that kind of... It, it saved us the trouble. And personally, I'm practiced enough now at just not looking at Enderman. Like, the, the kind of torso up of Enderman is something I've gotten really good at not looking at. So I, I don't notice them as much. When there's like a ton of them around... Um, then it can be a bit of a nuisance, but most of the time I got used to just just kind of avoiding them and maybe like looping my you know crosshair over the top of them if I wanted to like look from one thing to another instead of sweeping mm-hmm. the horizon with it. But yeah, they they are a little bit of a pain. They are also a built-in XP farm if you have mending, and you know the, there's enough of them spawning around you that you don't really want for things like ender pearls that can be useful for building higher and so forth. So it um. Yeah, it, it varies, really. Um, I think, yeah, there, there may be other ways of getting around that as well. But honestly, I think, yeah, if you want to build in the end, you have to get used to there being effectively a monoculture out there. There's not really a whole lot you can do. If you can bring renewable resources with you, like wood farms and so forth, then that's great. But eventually you are going to want for overworld resources not least Mm. because if you're flying around with elytra you'll need a renewable source of gunpowder for fireworks and the opportunity does not exist in the end you can't spawn creepers there there are no structures which have gunpowder or fireworks as resources you can farm sugarcane for the other half of fireworks but we have had to either to start with we accepted donations of gunpowder but then after that we um yeah we we decided that we should probably head back to the overworld and use everybody's mob farm. Um, so I think if you're planning on building in the end, then preparation is really the key for that. I think Mushroom Islands can potentially be a better place for it just because everything else is within reach and you can still mm. gather all of your stuff in the overworld there and live a, a fairly normal existence otherwise. Yeah, and you can't get uh, gunpowder in the nether unless piglins barter it right like uh ghasts no... will also oh, drop it ghasts. but it, again that right. that's that's another kind of fairly unreliable thing you can't mass farm them mm. the way you can with creepers and right. yeah th- there's there's a few options there but it does become a little bit of a nuisance <laughs> so yeah. and i guess depending on your gameplay you're not really flying around the nether all that much there's just so many hazards to bonk into and fall into and oh yes you know, uh, if you're the un- end, unfamiliar you to, with you know. it especially yeah 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 i mean i've seen sometimes when there's like been really large lava lakes when players on a server like hermitcraft are very used to where everything is and you know how to fly and all that kind of stuff i'll fly around uh, in my server but i admit that i usually fly over ground or bridges i don't necessarily fly open o- over open lava because knowing my luck that's when my elytra decides to break because i'm not paying attention you know mm-hmm. just like run run out of durability or something so i the reason i brought up the enderman is because um i had done pretty well i had a, a stream two streams ago where i died a lot just trying to cave and get stuff and it was a kind of a um an unfortunate loop that i found myself in but um this weekend one of my deaths uh, which was very annoying because i was at like level 26 or something was an enderman that i didn't even see 
didn't yeah. even didn't see him didn't if i had seen him i know enough not to look at him but i was just like i'm in an open cave like i got nowhere to go i can't get into a wall fast enough and i mean two hits and i was done and i was mm-hmm. just like well this is why i don't play hardcore <laughs> because i would just be like all like all 15 to 20 hours of what i just built is just done i'm just like no not yeah so i if in the end i i do find like we did the thing the torch grid on our main end island uh which we have to like you know fix up whenever someone fights the dragon um, but we did that to, uh, to have Endermen spawn in a very specific spot. So we left like a little spot where they could spawn, which mm-hmm. means that they won't spawn anywhere else because they're just constantly spawning in this dark spot and then dying because they're running towards an Endermite and then falling into the void. We have yep. an Ender farm elsewhere. <laughs> mm-hmm. We just did it purely to control the spawning in the area. Yeah, yeah, which is is kind of handy. And we, we did start setting up a uh, an Enderman farm with an Endermite in our little end island area but yeah that is that is unfortunately how one of the deaths happened and zloy ended up getting killed by an enderman that just teleported to him while it was aggroed uh, so yeah. yeah a little little bit rough especially on a hardcore world I, sp- I suppose it's a little bit less of a concern if you're playing on a on a regular server but yeah. everyone everyone on this server only has one life to uh <laughs> their disappointment right. when stuff like that yeah. comes for them um Main reason I've been sticking on this server so much is because I'm procrastinating on other things, naturally, and I have come to the realization that planning the museum on the fly, and not just necessarily the exhibits themselves, but all of the other stuff, the fact that it has to be encased in this larger building, uh, the museum and the survival guide has kind of become a bit of a roadblock, and because I really want to stick the landing on this series, and I'm fairly certain that 117 is relatively speaking around the corner um so i don't really have the time for trial and error on such a large scale i've decided to copy the current build of the museum into a creative world and i'm designing the museum in creative to then rebuild in the survival guide world proper basically cutting out all of the guesswork that's going to go into building this place and i found that to be quite a decent way of working and I, I really need to use creative mode more to plan stuff because it always turns out better when I do and then it's just the process of building it a second time taking enough screenshots that I don't have to keep going back and forth between the two uh right. tends to be the uh the only the only problem in my way at that point but I'm, I'm expecting to move ahead with a lot more building in survival guide relatively soon which is why I wanted to get this stuff on the the hardcore smp established and then just kind of leave it be for a while while I work on other things I, I feel you. I I got my butt kicked by an angled build on the server this weekend, and just I think I took the better part of two and a half hours to start the bottom, get the second floor mapped out, and then redo the roof four times. And I just like <laughs> I I ended up having to make a sacrifice to the design just because I was getting so frustrated with it. And I don't build in creative because one I don't like building stuff twice. Uh, I tend to get bored but it would be definitely beneficial to do that for me uh for you though where you produce so much content i can see the advantage for sure of saving yourself some time coming up with some designs even if you're just designing slices you know like if you know it's something that you're going to be repeating for the length of the wing of the museum Mm -hmm. designing that one five or seven wide section is going to save you a lot of time to then just repeat it in the survival guide uh, whereas for me, like when I'm playing creative, I just think like I could be just streaming this, you know, Yeah. Uh, which I could do. Like I could also, there's nothing, you know, I don't know why my brain gets stuck on this, but like there's no reason why I couldn't pop into a creative world 
and building creative on stream for five or 10 minutes to just say, this is how high we need to make it. This is how the angle of the roof is gonna work. This is how we do this. And then pop into survival. Because when you're correcting mistakes in, in creative, it takes far less time than survival. But I don't know, there is something, I think, not, not creative in terms of inspirational, but like if there's something a little bit, um, like a hurdle to get past when you're doing something live on stream in survival from a design perspective. I find like I have to dip into what I know and I can't dip into what I don't know, which means I'm not spending six, eight hours on it because eventually I'll just be like, okay, I'm going to have to look something up. I'm going to have to get better at this for next time. And so it becomes an iterative process rather than a constant redoing of, of something. Yeah. Um, but yeah. The, uh, the main thing I'm concerned about is making sure that everything looks good from ground level when you're exploring in survival compared mm. to creative. You can put in all this detail that you're just never going to see because you're not going to be up that high in the yeah. build a whole lot. And good call. You know, it, it, it depends whether you, like how much time you spend flying around the area with Elytra, you know, that kind of stuff. But I, yeah, I'm, I'm working on uh, the compromise between the two and, and spending a little bit of time standing back from it in creative, but then not having to run all the way to my storage to try out one block to see if it looks right and decide that it doesn't and then yeah. kind of get frustrated that I've wasted the time doing that. Yeah, 100%. Want to move on to do some news? Absolutely, let's do it. Checking out the snapshot this week, it is Minecraft Java Edition Snapshot 21W18A. The full patch notes are on minecraft.net. Changes in 21W18A include infested blocks that are no longer instantly destroyed. Instead, they have half the destroy time of their non-infested counterpart. A little bit more on this later. Screaming goats will use their ram attack more often than other goats do. Changes to the Caves and Cliffs preview data pack, including a new ore distribution graphic, again published on Minecraft.net. Copper spawning has been reduced a bit to compensate for large ore veins. Large ore veins are slightly more rare and slightly smaller on average, but the size varies a lot, so you can still find huge veins. The chance of finding raw ore blocks in ore veins has been increased. Cave carvers generate below Y0 in ocean biomes. They didn't before, and that was an accident. Increased the minimum size of noodle caves and carvers to make them easier to traverse and less likely to break up into fragments. Noodle caves no longer generate above Y0, so the surface should be less riddled with holes. Deep slate blobs above Y0 have been removed. Again, this is talking about the Caves and Cliffs preview data pack. Extended the vertical range of smaller blobs of iron ore to make it possible to find iron in caves near the surface. The amount of normal-sized iron blobs in the world has been slightly reduced to compensate for large ore veins that are increased in range of the smaller blobs. Fixed bugs of note in 21W18A, including the last use of an anvil causing a player to drop their item. Old cave and ravine generation gets cut off unnaturally in chunk borders near water. Certain custom biome settings cause the game to spam received invalid biome ID minus one in the console, causing major lag to freeze. Some strips of chunks generated completely dark. Piglins aren't attracted to a block of raw gold and piglins aren't angered when mining a block of raw gold. 
We covered this briefly last week, but a more detailed article was published on Minecraft.net about Minecraft Dungeons introducing cloud saves. We'll have a link to this in the show notes as well, along with a help page which covers the process in more detail. Essentially what they have done to introduce cloud saves to Minecraft Dungeons is add an upload and download hero button to the character select screen when you load up dungeons. So your progress up to that point is saved to the cloud when you upload your hero and you download them onto other devices to continue the adventure. That copies over a whole bunch of the weapons and armor your characters have received, the levels they've unlocked and the progress they've made in the game. But it is worth noting, characters are not then automatically synced to cloud storage. So if you play Minecraft Dungeons on multiple platforms, you need to download your character before playing and then upload it again before ending your session. Otherwise, you won't see that progress on other consoles or platforms. Also, purchasing DLC does not transfer between platforms, so you have to own the DLC packs on the platform you're playing on to access DLC missions and cosmetics. If you have the whole Nether update, uh, if you have the Nether levels on your PC but you want to play that on Switch and you haven't bought that pack on Switch, you don't get access to those Nether levels. You should still have access, I believe, to all of the weapons and armor and stuff because you can also trade for those at the camp, but you don't get the cosmetics, so all of the little pets and capes and stuff that have been added in previous uh, DLC packs. Uh, cloud saves should allow for a maximum of 20 unique slots to save your characters. So there's plenty there if you have family who are playing with you and you've each got different characters in dungeons, you can upload up to 20 of them before you'll need to delete them and make room for more. So I was looking over this and I still can't find the answer. Uh, I know that I have access to Minecraft Dungeons on my Xbox because of my Xbox Game Pass Ultimate. Uh, I can't seem to find out if I have access to the DLC because of that. Uh -huh. So I'm looking forward to saving my player progression uh, and, and playing on the Xbox from the PC. I've purchased like the hero edition of stuff on the PC. So I would have access to at least the first two DLC yeah. bits. Mm -hmm. But it looks like I may have to purchase them again on xbox i mean it's not a big deal it's only a few dollars but still like i i find that i was I, I was looking before the show about xbox game pass and xbox game pass ultimate to see what i actually had access to but it just says the standard edition it doesn't say the the game pass and game pass ultimate only differentiates between having access on the standard edition on pc versus pc and xbox Right. Yeah. It doesn't say anything about the DLCs. Yeah, yeah. So I'm going to have to do a little bit more digging. If anybody knows and, and wants to write in, um, spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Yeah, I think the, the quickest way to check would probably just be to load it up on your Xbox and see if any of the DLC that you've had yeah. on PC is there. Because, yeah, there, there might be yeah. some stuff that transfers over. I'm not quite certain how Game Pass Ultimate works, but it may be that you get access to them on, on both. Um, but yeah, either way, it's something to be aware of because I know a lot of people will want to transfer their characters over so they can play on say the nintendo switch and they can just kind of you know noodle away on it on the couch or in bed or whatever and then if you don't have the dlc downloaded on switch if you haven't paid for that through the switch store then it'll be uh yeah impossible to access the levels that you've been doing previously which brings with it you know additional stuff like daily challenges and that kind of stuff that won't be accessible to you if they take place in those levels on that day so yeah wor worth noting at least but um they also recently published an Ask Mojang video 
on the uh, the Minecraft YouTube channel, which has a little bit of information about the future of dungeons, and they didn't go into too much detail about this, but it seems like they do have plans to continue Minecraft dungeons beyond the upcoming ocean and end updates and whether those just constitute more kind of balances and tweaks and free updates to the game or if it's more levels depending on different biomes or structures or something we have yet to get any confirmation on but i'm going to leave a, a link to the minecraft dungeons ask mojang episode in the show notes as well so that'll be interesting to watch if you guys didn't catch that already so a lot of my experience in the snapshot this week has been well i shouldn't say a lot all of it has been uh in 117 summer sort of without the caves and cliffs preview data pack so a lot of what i was looking at really didn't change a whole lot so my only kind of you know experience with the caves and cliffs changes which is mostly what the snapshot is came from videos like yours and, and other creators that i follow so what what would you say would be your your biggest takeaways from your gameplay in the snapshot this week so I went into the snapshot with the data pack enabled, mostly looking at performance because of the freezing sort of lagging issues that we'd been experiencing and availability of iron because that was something that we brought up on the show before and I was interested to see when they announced this in the snapshot notes how much that had changed. I'm happy to report a major improvement on both. <laughs> so the freezing issue seems to have been caused by the bug that we mentioned in the fixed bugs section of the snapshot notes uh the received invalid biome id spamming the console uh which was causing lag spikes and performance has been pretty good like the other folks i've spoken to about this have also agreed that the uh, performance issues seem to largely be fixed and there might have been a couple of related issues that are still present but as far as i can tell the snapshot with the data pack is at least playable in every world i load up now which is great um so caving is obviously something that's still undergoing a few rebalances and i found in this snapshot with the data pack iron is now frequent enough in caves again that you can make iron tools and armor with a couple of trips into relatively shallow caves and this eliminates the problem you've been having before with just not being able to get iron armor and then feeling like oh i can't really go caving now because i'm just gonna end up dying right. without anything more protective and uh yeah i found a couple of decent veins of iron no lower than about y40 so you know 20 blocks or so under the surface and you know in a couple of shallow caves like that that was enough um to at least get started with iron tools iron armor and maybe i start stockpiling it from there but it meant that i wasn't digging down to you know y16 where i found the most abundant surface iron previously and I wasn't having to branch mine into the nearby walls in the hope of finding one or two blocks of it. So I think this change where they have reduced the amount of iron overall, but made the range of the smaller blobs of iron ore a little bit higher in the world, I think that's a really good rebalance. It feels a bit more like caving used to, and it's had the added bonus effect of me not getting mad every time I see copper. <laughs> because, like... I didn't notice there being particularly reduced amounts of copper. They said in the snapshot notes that they reduced it, but every time I'd go into caves in these snapshots and find copper, I'd go, well, that's just where the iron should be, <laughs> you know? Um, yeah. As though it had replaced the iron, which obviously it hadn't, but it, it, did, it did become the material that you found as frequently as iron, but with none of the uses that iron had. Um, 
so yeah, I, I was I was a lot happier being able to find iron that way, and I still think that the large veins and the promise of more abundant iron is going to provide enough incentive for people to dig deeper, because of course you'll need it throughout the rest of your gameplay for if not for tools, then at least kind of fun of hoppers and pistons and you know mechanical components, all the other stuff that iron ends up getting used for, beacons, iron golems, all of that stuff a bit later on. Yeah, I with my experience, I've found a lot of iron uh, now that I switch back to the the non preview part. Yeah, of it. and uh, I still have that issue when I see a lot of copper because. Um, I can't build with copper with any control right now because I don't have silk touch and I can't get like bees nests and start the waxing process. Right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Cause I, I have to, they're pretty far away to be convenient. I have to bring them closer to where I'm working. Uh, and uh, so I'm finding copper and I'm keeping it like I'm mining it when I find it, but I very often I'm looking for iron because I'm shy on diamonds. I'm, you know, trying to replace gear that I lost when I died. I'm trying to, I'm going through pickaxes constantly. So, um, in order to set up new farms, in order to do new things, like I needed some extra iron, and I've been finding it quite readily, actually, uh, and enjoying the process of seeing all the different things I'm finding, redstone, iron, um, lapis, in both uh, stone and deep slate, because, of course, in my snapshot, I'm using the 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 vanilla generation which has the blobs of deep slate in the bottom of the world. Yes. And so you're getting, you get to see both, um, iron ore in just normal stone but also in deep slate stone and redstone in particular looks really fun in deep slate it's got a really nice contrast to it it looks it looks very new it feels fresh even though it's the exact same mineral or you're getting the exact same thing it's just it's a lot of fun that you way. are you're um, among but, the the privileged few who will get to see copper deep slate ore because uh yeah yes. co- copper deep slate wasn't supposed to be part of vanilla generation and when deep slate only generated below y0 copper doesn't generate that low down so you don't normally get it whereas in uh, 117 now they are planning on having these blobs of deep slate with deep slate ores in them up until you know y16 i think is the highest you'll find them around sort of what we have thought mm-hmm. of as diamond yep. level so you'll still find copper down there and you'll still get the uh, the deep slate ore but anybody starting their world in 1.18 when world generation changes is not going to see those anymore because as of this snapshot they have removed those deep slate blobs above y0 for those types of world generation it's it's an interesting change it does make those cave environments feel a little cleaner where previously they'd gotten kind of a little messy with all of the additional materials you know they added tough in there they've added deep slate and there's obviously a mix of dirt and andesite and all of the other decorative stones but then if you're starting a world in 117 and then updating to 118, those deep slate blobs will persist in chunks you've already generated. And if you're just starting fresh in 118, you won't have those at all. So it might be an interesting thing. It might be kind of rare, actually, for people to still have deep slate copper, maybe silk touched and used for aesthetic purposes or whatever you want to use it for. But then you won't be able to get that as of 1.18, except in creative. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I, I mean, anecdotally, I'm finding the the deep slate at Y11 is slowing down the mining process considerably because it's a lot slower to mine through. Right. Than yeah. It is, yeah. Uh, than stone, and so when you run into a patch of it, you're kind of rolling your eyes, like, well, I'm not going to get anything new or special from it. I'm getting more deep slate, which is cool. I mean, again, it's nice to have the block, you know, to to build with if you want to build with it. Uh, and I've built with it just out of necessity, not that I've designed anything with it just yet. But 
um, it's it really slows you down when you're going through those monotonous branch mines of like just looking for diamonds just so you can get a couple of pickaxes and not have to be replacing the iron ones all the time. It's uh, it, it gets a little bit tedious in that way. Um, I found, uh, and I'm curious what you feel when running around the caves and looking for all this kind of stuff. I was passing by copper in the same way that I passed by coal. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of feel the same. If you're not going specifically for copper, I just, I leave it alone most of the time, mm-hmm. unless I'm testing yep. for if there's a huge vein there, because if I, if I see copper right. next to granite now, I, I automatically go, oh, okay, I'll, I'll take a look around in here and see if there is the uh the the hints of a, a huge vein but aside from that no I, I don't think i'll be collecting copper as much unless i need a spyglass or a lightning rod or i'm intending to build with copper in the near future because there won't be anything else you really need it for but that's okay i think i think it's a a neat way of um you know making your mining trips a little bit more purposeful i suppose is kind of you mm-hmm. know gi- giving again with the strategy for mining thing giving you a reason to go back to those caves and I tend to leave ores in the walls uh, as I go caving anyway, with the exception of things like diamond and redstone. I'll leave coal, I'll leave iron, just so if I come back to that cave, I know there are still some resources in it. Like, I'm not mining everything that I see as I go. So I I find myself doing that with copper, unless I'm particularly trying to explore copper with the worlds I'm generating. But I'm also, unlike you, I'm not keeping them around for longer than, like, a stream or a video session. I'm not kind of... uh, you know, doing a persistent world until uh, world right. generation changes more permanently. Yeah, and I'll be able to experiment that. Like when world generation changes permanently in the other snapshots down the road, I'll probably roll this world forward just to kind of see what those borders look like. You know, it'd be kind of a fun research for my own purposes for the Citadel, that kind of thing. Um, how, you, how you find the noodle caves? Honestly, the noodle caves are good. I think they seem a little bit more hospitable than the previous versions that having been widened and made a little bit easier to navigate. I think it's great that they connect other features of the underground. I think there's nothing more deflating than getting into a cave and then realizing that it dead ends about four blocks in, you know? And I I think these noodle caves have been designed with the intent of them being much longer and there being more chances to connect to other features of the underground. And I I ran into what I thought were a couple of them, but it turned out to just be like a, a slightly new cave carver on the surface but then i definitely ran into a couple on the way down and it's it's funny that they're sort of the thing they don't draw attention to themselves you don't walk into one and immediately go aha a noodle cave in the same way that you do with the massive caverns and it's more just caving feeling like it's got some direction to it more than drawing attention to this is definitely a noodle cave you know it doesn't doesn't signpost itself in that way um the other stuff let, let's talk about the stuff that isn't unique to the data pack um have you messed around with either screaming goats or the infested stone which is the for for folks who aren't familiar with the term infested i had to look it up a couple of times to go is this what they're talking about silverfish stone uh the stuff that if you mine it with a pickaxe it spawns a silverfish instead of dropping a block so i uh i don't i've not run into any silverfish actually in in the snapshot at all uh and uh i I thought that the change that they made was uh, again was good, although it doesn't look like that's what they planned. I don't yeah. know. I I watched the videos, and the fact that in the videos it takes twice as long to mine a silverfish block as it does a regular block, I thought, oh, good, because I thought that's how it worked already. I didn't realize it had changed to insta break, um, because again, I just I run into it so. Do you know when it changed uh, to insta break? I don't. One thirteen. 
So it's it's been that way for three really? years now <laughs> yeah and and so like i think it, it, there's either an error in the patch notes or in the game's code because the patch notes say half the destroy time for infested stones so it should break 0.5 times as fast as stone does it should be quicker and then when i tested it out it takes longer to break and, and it feels like it's been reverted to pre-113 when you could tell that silverfish stone was infested when you were mining in mountains or strongholds because it broke more slowly and it's it's really strange <laughs> because yeah the the patch notes imply it breaks faster but in practice it definitely breaks slower it, it feels like mining deep slate compared to mining stone if i was to hazard a guess given how i feel about the change in that i like this better that it's slower than stone uh i've got a funny feeling it's a typo slash a sentence worded reversely in the patch notes that's a guess i don't know for sure um i prefer it this way because i would like to know when i'm about to mine a silverfish block. <laughs> i think the last time i encountered them was when i was clearing the um oh the stronghold yeah. for our nether portal or not nether portal our end portal that's the last time that i encountered them before i encountered them at the spawner which i quickly broke because who wants one of those uh like it's it's one of those things where like that's the last time I remember being extraordinarily agitated by them because I don't enjoy fighting them. Yeah. And it's not that they're hard. It's just you get nothing from them other than a little bit of XP. There's no benefit to the player. And it's an annoying fight. Yeah. It's not a fun thing. Like I like smacking a zombie in the face and having him fly over, you know, or, or fall over or knocking a zombie into, into lava. Because again, I don't really need anything that they have unless they're holding something I might want. I, you know... I don't have any use for them. Uh, I had a zombie die on stream the other day by a creeper that was coming after me and I held my shield up and the zombie went flying. Yeah. <laughs> it was hilarious. Mm -hmm. He went right over my head like someone kicked a football. I we, The whole chat lost their mind. And like that's the kind of stuff that is, yes, it's annoying to deal with mobs, but at least little fun things like that make it worth it. There's no benefit to silverfish. Yeah, no. yeah. silverfish are some of my least favorite mobs. Also because they're, they're like rats. They're just kind of like kind of gross and at ground level and yeah. you just want to kick them uh yeah. and yeah i i i kind of agree i i regardless of whether this is a bug or just like an, an error in the the patch notes um i do like it being a longer destroy time i i have a feeling that if it's meant to be half the destroy time it's meant to be because you're still supposed to be ambushed by them you know they are a trap block effectively um and so i i honestly expect that it's the game is the wrong way around not the patch notes um but yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think the main reason this change has been implemented is maybe to prevent you from just punching a stone brick block and it awakening a silverfish, because I think you are still meant to be mining these, but the insta-break for silverfish stone basically allows you to punch a block and a silverfish appears. Uh, you don't need to use a pickaxe for it, so it, it becomes a, right. a, a little bit... Um, antithetical to the way you're supposed to be exploring that area i think you're supposed to be destroying the blocks with a pick at least and yeah maybe that at least gives people a chance not to accidentally punch silverfish out of the walls around them um speaking of things going flying though uh screaming goats being a more aggressive i think is a really good compromise and i i want to point everyone to a tweet by ulraf uh, one of the developers who said this is to accommodate different play styles uh, to quote this is a classic case where different play styles collide some players want to have a goat in their base and not get booped too often which takes the surprise out of finding them naturally but others might want to use goats in farms mini games or generally have them as more of a threat 
So the compromise they've made is to make screaming goats, which only occur 2% of the time. One in 50 goats will be one of these more aggressive screaming goats, are more aggressive and they will ram you much more frequently. I tested this out. There are a couple of commands you can run to either spawn a screaming goat or turn an existing goat, modify its entity data, turn it into a screaming goat. And they definitely ram you at the first opportunity and it's very fun. I think the the previous batch of goats before they added this behavior they were just a little bit too slow to react so you're you're kind of running up to a goat in this and kind of going yeah i want to see do the thing <laughs> do the thing that i've seen you do like run up and ram me and then they just kind of ignore you for a while and it feels like an afterthought that they come up and you know boop you but i think having the screaming goats do this makes it more accessible to players who want to use that as a mechanic and those are also the players who are going to spend a little bit of time breeding up goats until they get them, uh, until they get ones that scream, and then sort of single those out. Also makes the farms themselves hilarious to listen to, I imagine, <laughs> because if you set up a creeper farm with a platform full of those screaming goats, you just get, you know, the occasional creeper damage sounds and blah as they, you know, <laughs> decide to <laughs> decide to knock them off the platform. So yeah, we'll uh, we'll see how it we'll see how it goes when the full update comes out if it's uh you know I, I think they might be a little too scarce if anything with them only being like one in 50 but that to me make, is what i was thinking too is that if you wanted these then it's gonna be really difficult to get them and it's gonna even just if one spawns it's gonna take you a little while to identify them like which which one is the screaming go like you're gonna have to separate them all to figure out which one is the one that's making the right noise or uh you know wait to see which one hits you twice and five minutes or something like i i feel like it's too bad that the screaming goats don't have a different texture yeah like when they when you get like like if you had like a gray one you know <laughs> instead of a white one yes just just like a little bit just something just something different about it to say you know it's it's an, an aggressive goat maybe the horns could be a different color or darker i don't know just something like that might be a little bit better um especially because um you know again talking about accessibility that comes up from time to time on the show like if you can't hear anything then you're really relying on how often it, it headbutts or um perhaps reading you know on-screen captions to try to figure out which one is is um like because because again if 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 the captions read like goat bleating as opposed to goat screaming then it would be a lot easier. Yeah, I, I think know, I think right now it says something like goat bellows or something like that. There is a distinct mm. subtitle that is different, but tracking down which one that is in a larger group would be quite difficult. You'd have to do it very systematically, I think. So yeah, we will see. I also don't know if they... I don't think they've implemented it in Java yet, but if they plan to generate... Um, if they if they plan on having goats spawn more young goats when they breed because on bedrock edition i believe when you bred two goats they spawn about four they spawn in like a litter of goats if that's the correct term and i don't think they do that in java yet i'm not certain if they plan to have them do that but i think it'd be it'd be interesting in terms of you know generating enough goats that you could get the screaming ones sort of consistently if you had a, a mechanic that allowed you to breed much more goats quicker i think that'd maybe be a, a good change to implement or uh if you find two screaming goats increase the chances that their offspring would also be yeah yeah it, it becomes like um brown mushrooms at that point where you know you right. you have a small chance for the offspring of two red mushrooms to be brown but then if you breed a brown one and a red one it becomes 50 50 if you breed two brown ones then it's consistent so yeah but right. potentially you might get uh you might get that 
I've not seen them in game, but I they look great. I still I was want to reinforce that I think they look really cool. And I the only reason I haven't sought them out is because I'm playing. I happen to be playing in a massive desert. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so there's there's no there's no snow anywhere. So I haven't seen them on any mountains. You you also need to track down a decent sized mountain biome. I found because a lot of the time the game will spawn passive mobs in the biomes around you. So if you're leaving a plains or a forest where there's you know abundant cows and sheep and everything, you don't find goats all that quickly. But then if you go into an area that's surrounded by mountains and it only has a chance to spawn the mobs that spawn in mountains, you get llamas, you get goats, that stuff shows up pretty regularly. Um, Mm. Let's move on to chunk mail for this week. Uh, If you'd like to email the show and potentially get your question read on air, the email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. The first email this week comes in from Mentat, a landscape artist member of our Discord, and the subject is, we've been thinking about copper all wrong. Greetings, Joel and Johnny. After hearing Joel say that copper is soft, I did some research and I found some interesting things. There is a Moses hardness scale that lists how hard materials are. It's important to note that how hard something is is not the same as how brittle something is. Copper, brass, and bronze have a hardness level of 3, iron is a 4, flint and most but not all forms of stone are in the 6 to 7 range, whereas obsidian is a 5.5 and diamond is 10. We can mine obsidian with stone and iron, but we destroy the block because we're literally chipping it to pieces. Onto the copper. The Incans used copper in ceremonial tools and in armour to signify rank, where most of Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean used it as currency, but mostly it was a decorative thing. Their use is ranged as wire to hold things shut, but also as dinnerware and jewellery. However, it's the jewellery part that got me thinking. What if copper is the key ingredient, not only in making an archaeology brush, but also in restoring artefacts? Copper doesn't have a lot of use yet, but may go hand in hand with archaeology, which could produce some neat game items that would only be obtainable that way. Mentat fell out of the world. P.S. Happy Star Wars Day. May the 4th be with you. I mean, it's, it's a little bit late for that. I think we've already had Revenge of the 5th as well. But uh, thank you so much for the email. <laughs> and yeah, this is an interesting perspective on copper and one that doesn't just go, you know, there should be tools for the sake of having tools. I, I like this line of thinking. And it's really interesting to hear about the real world hardness scale on which all of these things are measured. I remember Moe's hardness scale from my geology courses in university. And when you get into the stones that are mostly in the six to seven range, it becomes really difficult to start to identify how hard a rock is based on whether an adjacent rock will scratch it. So like if you have an eight and a six, the eight should scratch the six, not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember being predict like really stuck with things like quartz, which happened to be a seven right in the middle and so you'd be trying to figure out like is the quartz coming off on the other block or is the block or is or is the other rock coming off on the quartz and it was always really tricky to to figure that out um i i like the idea that there's some you know real world application of that in in minecraft which i think is really cool i don't know if mojang is going down this road and adding things like uh jewelry or decorative items um if they did then it would be neat if it was like, you know, copper related, like making a copper chain or a copper ring or using copper to then, you know, inlay different things to get different player effects maybe. But if those player enchants affect any kind of thing like toughness of armor or any kind of ability, like, you know, an offensive ability, then the trick is that those things have to be um, very visible in PVP so that you can communicate to other players visually that you have something going on that's not just plain armor. Um, 
I do like the ability, and I think I've seen similar things in like mods and stuff where a player necklace will have like health regen or mining, you know, um, augments like mining speed um, or um, what's one that I thought that was really fun and unique was like um, like an item magnet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, so if you wear a specific pendant, you don't have to go quite as far to pick up the items that have been dropped on the on the ground. You know, chop down a tree and there's a bunch of stuff flying around from the leaves. They'll all just kind of like come get sucked up to you as the player. Um, but again, it's a cool idea. I just don't know if it gets implemented and if it does, how it, you know, tracks across all of Minecraft, you know? Yeah, I, I think jewelry and, and archaeology have the potential to make, for a start, cosmetic items more available to players. The kind of stuff that, yeah, becomes visible over the top of armor instead of being just a modification to your minecraft skin i know we have uh, Mm. more of a cosmetic item system on bedrock than we have on java because java skin uh you know customization is a little bit more prevalent but i think having something in game that can customize the way armor looks or tools look without necessarily changing their um their their abilities could be an interesting thing just to to add more personality to the tools you use all the time and i do wonder if maybe introducing something like jewelry could have some value in villager trading so you find that there is a villager who will buy jewelry items from you that maybe you've dug up using archaeology they will buy things from you for a value of higher than one emerald per trade because all of the existing villager trades we have right now are only you give a you give me x amount of things you get one emerald back I do kind of wonder if maybe the economy can shift in the favor of the player that way, where if you are, you know, fashioning copper jewelry, if that's something that you've dug up, something precious using archaeology, maybe villagers want to purchase that for a higher price. Uh, I think, Mm. I can't remember if it was on the show or if it was something we discussed on streams and there was the idea of villagers like being sophisticated enough to hold an auction and having like, you know, the the potential for things being bought at a higher price. And that seems like a, you know, a little bit difficult to implement, but I I do like the idea of there being, uh, you know, a little bit more value in some of the stuff you're trading to people. It, It might end up rebalancing the whole trading system down the line because then why are they buying, you know, one diamond for one emerald still? But I think it's it's got potential. And yeah, I, I do think copper will have more ties into systems that we're going to see in future, like archaeology and a couple of other bits and pieces that will, yeah, potentially give more uses for copper than we have presently. I am one with the fourth, and the fourth is with me. <laughs> Very good. Very good. Let's Let's get the second email out of the way so we can move on to our main discussion. Next email comes in from By the Horns, a landscape artist member in the Discord. Item augmentation versus enchanting. Hi, Joel and Johnny. After listening to episode 139, I've been thinking a lot about the idea of armor augmentation via the use of smithing table and how we could add more functionality to the idea outside of just aesthetics. I have attached a general idea on how the process would work in vanilla Minecraft. We'll have an image in our show notes, and I'll put that in the Discord as well. Uh, as well as the show notes on the website. My question, however, seems uh, stems from some feedback I saw swirling around online when the interaction between leather boots and powder snow was added into the snapshots and the bedrock beta. And that was, why not just have the Frostwalker enchantment do the same thing as leather so I don't have to wear leather boots? Do you think Mojang has blocked themselves into a corner I see what you did there, with enchanting when it comes to armor and tool augmentation being something 
could that be uh, functionally useful? Or if armor augmentation was introduced to the game, would it have to remain purely aesthetic? Um, something, something, something Minecraft, something goodbye. By the horns. <laughs> yeah, they're running out of ideas, Joel. Um, <laughs> so so the graphic that, we, once again, we will have this in the show notes, uh, suggests that if you add leather to something in a smithing table, it includes cold resistance to 117's powder snow and the ability for the armor to be dyed. Adding a gold ingot to something could increase the likelihood of piglin neutrality and maybe give it the higher enchantability. But these also add negatives, so your move speed in water could be decreased if you add leather to it. Even with Depth Strider, it could like slow you down a little bit, maybe because the, the leather inside becomes kind of soaked through and you drag a little bit. And then the gold-enhanced armor could potentially be weaker to fire because gold, as they've pointed out, is very heat-conductive. Uh, in this case, iron would have no additional effects. Diamond would grant plus two armor toughness and one extra armor defense point, but presumably wouldn't do anything to enhance diamond armor. Uh, so adding in that armor toughness stat to things like leather, gold, chain, and so forth. And then netherite would add knockback resistance, armor toughness, and it would drop a netherite ingot when destroyed by lava, but would reduce the armor points by one to balance it out a little bit more. It's an interesting... Uh, you know, the adding positives and negatives to something is something that, with them, uh, the, the the email suggesting that Mojang has kind of backed themselves into a corner uh, with enchanting. I kind of agree, and the only attempts that have been made to balance enchanting a little bit more have been with the addition of curses. But you don't get those natively from an enchantment table, and the only times curses really come into play are when you end up with an enchanted book that has a curse on it if you fished it up or got it from a, a loot chest or maybe you can trade them from villagers but you don't get multiple enchantments on the same book so there are very few times in which those curses become inconvenient you can use them mechanically for other things but i find that there are fewer things that balance stuff out in this way and it leads to the problem of players always going for the most powerful thing because having the most powerful thing doesn't really have any negative consequences. That's something... They've, mm. they've tried to shuffle this around a little bit with uh, wearing gold to prevent piglins from attacking you and then, yeah, the, the powder snow cold resistance idea. And I wonder if the reason they haven't introduced stuff like this for the smithing table is because they haven't been able to balance the downsides of it and the fact that powder snow is intended to make you think okay i'm going up a mountain i should probably put my leather boots on and react to the environment a little bit more by changing armor yeah i think the way that the powder snow works is the same way that piglin bartering works you know it's like if if you want to go into the nether uh, sorry not piglin bartering if you uh, the piglin aggression if you go and want to go to the nether you have to sacrifice one of the things you're wearing and change over to gold if you want to be left alone um and uh, from what I've seen, the meta for that now is a helmet because people want decent boots for feather falling. Uh, they don't want to have to repair them all the time. Um, it doesn't make any sense to take the items that give you more protection and turn them into gold. So a helmet seems to be the one thing that people trade off to the point where I don't even bother to have other enchants on my gold helmet. I just let, I either repair it, let it fall apart, whatever. Sometimes I get one from a zombie. I just wear, you know, a gold helmet on the Citadel most of the time. In case I go into the nether, I just don't want to have to be bothered by pigment. Um, with, uh, with Mentat's idea of, um, 
you know, trying to do decorative stuff. Again, with these kind of things, if they're going to affect your durability or any kind of um, weapon stuff, like so if you're not talking about just augmenting armor, but you're talking about also augmenting weapons, then that has to be clearly visually communicated to other players for PvP purposes. Uh, I like the idea of the cold resistance and powdered snow of leather if you add leather to armor because it would, I mean, it would insulate, you know, the metal. It would make sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and the only thing there that would be affecting in like something like PvP would be like being able to be slower in water. You'd kind of, you'd want to know, like if you're chasing a player through water and they've got leather armor on, you want to know if that's going to slow them down. But it, it doesn't have any kind of like immediate... Um, it has more of a survival effect than a PvP effect. And that's the kind of stuff that I can see this being implemented, you know, more for. I love the idea, though. Like, I would love to be able to take my iron chestplate or my netherite chestplate and hammer some gold into it so that pig piglins can leave me alone and I can still wear my netherite, you know, um, my netherite armor. But I feel like if you did that, then ultimately, like you mentioned players are just going to find out what's the best one and that's just going to be the new normal and it's going to remove that choice um i shouldn't say remove the choice there's going to be a heavy uh influence to you know let's say that the best combination is a leather reinforced uh boot combined with a gold inlaid helmet and uh your elytra and then just regular netherite pants maybe with um you know something else in there for for whatever hardness or something that you need and then everybody just ends up wearing that combo because that's like the best of all the features right? yeah yeah it's, it, it always ends up following a meta and that might be fine just for casual play but yeah i i, mm -hmm. I like the idea of introducing more diversity to armor by creating situations in which it is required for players and honestly i don't think the powder snow issue is going to be as bad as people think it's going to be which is odd but mm. i think yeah you want to explore the mountains you, you kind of go prepared you kind of understand okay there's going to be powder snow around with these mountains being as rare as they are i think the only other instance you need to worry about powder snow is if somebody gets hold of it and then uses it to make traps in which case you're going to be more cautious naturally anyway and have some things that are you know go, going to at least account for the possibility of there being traps so you're going in more cautiously in the first place i don't know if people are really going to need to carry leather boots around with them everywhere like it's going to be the biggest problem in the world and so yeah i i I, th I think it's going to be less of an inconvenience than anybody thinks it is personally but yeah i i, I still like the idea of them diversifying armor and, and including more materials and, and incentivizing the use of other materials and honestly broadening the appeal of the smithing table because right now it does one thing. And yeah, I, I'm, I'm interested to see how that happens. I expect they might not rebalance any of that stuff until they've got a more unified system for combat, which is something that they were working on a while ago and we haven't really heard from since, presumably because of the shift in Caves and Cliffs priorities. But... It'll be mm. interesting to see what happens when the combat update finally arrives and if the tools and armor need a bit of a shift around again as well. Moving into the main discussion this week, this came up very briefly either last week or the week before, and it's about gameplay signposts. And you wanted to kind of expand on this and talk about it a little bit more. Yeah, uh, so 
this kind of came up for me. I was watching uh, one of the other folks from the Don't Die SMP, uh, Bruno Danoy, who plays uh, half-hearted hardcore. So, yeah, a hardcore world in which you only have half a heart of health and any damage you take will kill you. Uh, he's been bridging through the air for about 10 hours looking for a pillager outpost uh, so that he could do a raid, maybe set up a raid farm and acquire Totems of Undying to make his ex existence in this world a little bit more secure. And uh, since outposts can generate in any biome in which villagers appear, he was bridging through the sky in his world in an attempt to find one, and it still took him ages. And when I popped into the stream to say hi, he explained that he'd had an idea of randomly spawned pillager patrols being able to drop a map that led you to their hideout. So a way of locating outposts without having to use any external tools to look them up or just stumble upon them randomly. And it got me thinking about how many of the features of a Minecraft world now have ways to guide the player to them. We've most recently, I think, had ruined portals added to indicate that nether access is possible, which, which previously had no way of telling you beyond just community knowledge and you looking it up. We also have maps that you can purchase from cartographers or salvage from shipwrecks to go to ocean monuments, woodland mansions, or in the latter case, buried treasure. And in part two of Caves and Cliffs, we can expect azalea trees to signpost the existence of lush caves. And I thought there must still be some features out there to which we still need guiding. So fossils are the example that always comes to mind for me. There's still something which players have to stumble upon by sheer chance in deserts and swamps. And most of the time, it's just randomly in caves. You stumble on a ravine. The ravine happens to have a fossil in it because you're below a desert. But it's so difficult to seek those things out if you want to find them specifically. Pillager outposts never seem to be there when you need them. Uh, and I was thinking about what else the player was required to stumble upon by chance and whether the game would benefit from more reliable ways to discover those. So the first thing that comes to mind is rare biomes, like a uh, extreme badlands. Yeah, the ones that look like real, like striated mesa and really cool colors, and they look like the southwest US. Eroded badlands, uh, I think, is the technical. Name eroded for it, badlands. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, mushroom islands. You know? Yeah, or mushroom islands. Like that. That's the kind of thing that some a lot of players want, and you're left to searching through seeds and online tools. You know, to easily locate one if you want to try to find one in your in your area or if you want to try to find a seed that has one close by or multiple um, depending on what you're looking for then you're left to do things outside of the game to find that uh, i also remember looking for a very long time before i found an ice spikes biome on the citadel yeah and i i think the the difficulty with signposting biomes by any other means is that it can take away from the intended experience of exploring your world to discover stuff like this and I, I i was thinking about there being a map to a jungle temple as an example of a structure that doesn't have any way of signposting its existence but i nice. feel like most people would argue that a map to a jungle temple is more likely to just be used as a map to a jungle you know the, the, the biomes are the biomes are rare enough that you're probably going to want to find a jungle more than you'll want to find a jungle temple because the loot there is comparable or possibly even worse than a desert temple would be twice as many chests in a desert temple and a desert temple is in a desert and you you know where to find those they're almost everywhere but then 
a jungle is a fairly sought after biome has a unique wood type and cocoa beans and you know the the kind of stuff that you're looking for bamboo and parrots and all, all of the other stuff that you find natively in jungles but they're still relatively rare and so i don't know if you know mapping though and, and finding ways to guide the player to those from whatever their spawn point is is necessarily a good thing for the early experience of just going out and wandering the world and seeing what you find but then you've got to maybe balance it with players who know exactly what they want are more experienced with the game but still have to rely on third-party tools in order to find jungle biomes yeah and i wonder if there's any rules in the game dev diary about things like using language from cartographers because you're talking about a cartographer that can give you a map to woodlawn mansion and not mention at all what the landscape is around it yeah <laughs> you know, like is it is it i mean obviously it's in in the woods somewhere but like do you have to cross a desert first like like what kind of cartographer are the, are you if you don't have that information for mm -hmm. me you know uh and i you know i i it makes me think of those old like text-based video games like you know go south until you hit the desert and then head west until you see you know the the ocean and and then you know whatever like that that could be kind of a fun way to encourage exploration to not necessarily signpost but like at least get people going in the right direction rather than traveling 10,000 blocks north when you realize that the jungle is south on your mm -hmm. world um that kind of stuff um but to your point uh I was actually watching Tango Tech stream a little bit this week and uh they were using a technique where with the uh deposit of clay in a swamp combined with a nearby chunk border they could discern where the diamonds were they went seven blocks from the middle of a, of a clay deposit dug straight down diamonds every single time and my initial reaction and which is still how i feel about it is like where's the fun in that yeah you mm -hmm. know like and coming from someone that mined for like you know an hour and a half this weekend and found six diamonds it was more exciting to find the six diamonds than it would be to go to the swamp, which there is one nearby and just dig down for them. Like that just feels like, well, why wouldn't, if I know exactly where it is, I might as well just turn on creative mode and give myself some diamonds. Yeah. Right. Like it just, it's, you know, the only thing that's changing is just how long it takes to get them. And it's marginal. Mm -hmm. Digging down 60 blocks does not take very long. Yeah. So yeah, I, I, I know what you mean about like, I don't necessarily want everything to be signpost, but in my experience with the snapshot, uh, I'm running into um, situations where I would like to have something that might point me towards uh, lush cave blocks, that might point me towards um, geodes. There's nothing to indicate where geodes are other than stumbling upon yeah. them. Uh, now, I would find them more readily if I looked up what their generation is in the in the wiki, or or if I were, went back to the snapshot notes and looked up when they're going to spawn, you know, between what Y levels. But that to me is like, well, that's not in-game experience. I, I want to try to experience things in the snapshot. Um, and it made me think about this uh, in terms of what signposts could be. Do they have to be visual? Like, what if, similar to how bat squeaking uh, or mob noises will indicate to you, oh, there's a cave nearby. Uh, what if geodes had like a resonance or a chime or something to them, similar to the blocks, you know, within them? Uh, it would be kind of neat if you're mining along and you heard kind of like a, a tuning fork hum, mm -hmm. you know, and you're just like, oh, huh, maybe I should look around here a little bit to see what I can find. Uh, that could be kind of cool. And in terms of, you know, audio impairment, like that, you could be, you know, using um, subtitles for stuff like that as well. Uh, so yeah, I just, I feel like there could be 
a little bit more, but I don't necessarily want to be handheld either. Yeah, know? I like the idea of there being mechanics which are more immersive and less esoteric. Like the, the clay technique for finding diamonds is a good example of that, where it's clearly something that folks have maybe just, you know, put two and two together when it comes to world generations. I mean, probably a little bit more complicated than putting two and two together. Otherwise, people would have been doing this for years. But, you know, they, they've taken enough sample data and kind of figured out the world generation patterns to the extent where yes you can find diamonds reliably in that location but that's again something that the community has discovered and is sharing around and becomes part of the the meta but it's sort of takes all of the immersion and fun out of it because you're doing things incredibly mechanically and mathematically and it's not like you're exploring a real world anymore. It it, re it kind of reintroduces the idea of this being a virtual landscape to Minecraft, which could otherwise be a very immersive and organic experience. And I think stuff like Bruno's idea of having pillager patrols drop a map to their outpost is a, a really good one, because thematically speaking, that seems like something pillagers would have on them, and I mean, it requires a pillager patrol to spawn for you in the first place, but it kind of gives you, it drip feeds you a little bit more content. It, it, it kind of gives you the notion of, oh, hey, we want to mess with more of these guys. You know, you want to get revenge on them for, you know, appearing out of nowhere and firing a ton of crossbows at you. Here's a map to their base. <laughs> you know, here's a map to their outpost. If you want to go and get revenge and take down a bunch of them and set fire to it with a flint and steel, <laughs> you know, send a message, you can. And I, I sort of like that as an idea. Um, I think a couple of other examples for this other than fossils, um, slime chunks are another really difficult one to balance. Mm -hmm. And that's something yep. that people are just used to looking up on an external tool. And you, you, I know lots of players who would like a way to confirm that a slime chunk is a slime chunk without using external tools. And technically their existence is advertised by finding a slime while you're exploring a cave but unless you saw exactly where it spawned you have no guarantees you're in the right place it might have moved through the cave over a chunk border and be in a you know a chunk that doesn't necessarily have a slime in it at all and then obviously the method for building a slime farm out of a slime chunk is perhaps a little esoteric as well but i i I like the idea of there being something else to signify, maybe a, a slimier patch of a cave, maybe some naturally generated slimy blocks, or if mossy, lush cave environments had a higher chance of being in slime chunks, then you would at least get a little bit of a signpost towards, all right, maybe this is a good place to try this. And as you dig it out, you find more slime spawning, and you go, all right, I definitely saw the one spawning there. And then you either mathematically or through you know, in-game debug tools, you go, okay, here are my chunk borders, or you just kind of dig around wherever and hope. Um, but yeah, it, it's a difficult one to balance and would, I think, require an environmental cue more than, you know, getting a map from a cartographer <laughs> that has a big X over it. It do doesn't seem like the right sort of mechanic to apply to everything. Um, I think when archaeology eventually arrives that could provide some really interesting ways of signposting stuff in the game because who knows what they're digging for you know like especially for fossils like it's going to be really helpful to peaceful players and anyone who wants a quick way of digging up a ton of bone meal if you dig out a trench that was started by a pre-generated archaeology feature and you are more likely to find fossil bones and and kind of stuff as as you go further down into that trench 
the same could maybe go for slime chunks and i was kind of hoping that geodes would start to attach themselves more to abandoned mine shafts and that maybe being law wise what the abandoned mine shaft you know diggers were digging for in the first place um yeah i i agree with that and specifically i noticed in your snapshot video this week when you switched into spectator mode to look around at the noodle caves uh i was thinking uh just how close you were to geodes with having absolutely no indication in the game that they were mm -hmm. there yeah and like that kind of thing would be like i'm sure i am a hair from a number of geodes in the ravines and snaky caves that i've explored in my snapshot playthrough and have not seen anything right uh, i've not run into i mean maybe it's something as simple as um similar to how they're handling the um the ore veins with copper and granite and with iron and uh deep is it tough what do, what do they put next to iron uh, i think it is you tough know, yeah the, tough yeah so there are um uh smooth basalt and and other blocks around a geode uh calcite is the other one i think mm -hmm. um and if those instead of just being a little ball like what if there were slightly larger strings of veins not nearly as 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 thick as these uh, ore veins we're seeing from copper and iron but if it was just something like if you stumbled across this rare little piece of calcite, you may, might think, oh, wait a minute. This is going to be within 16 or 20 blocks of a geode. I should really kind of punch some holes in the walls here and see if I can't find more of this mm -hmm. and might lead me on a little snake trail down towards a, a, a geode. Um, and But I, I agree. I think finding a mine shaft. I, I like the, the number of mine shafts that we found on the Citadel over the four years that we've been playing. It's not a lot, but it's enough that you're like, I don't feel like it's impossible to find them. And it's frequent enough that we're satisfied with it, but infrequent enough that it's always exciting when you find yeah. them. Yeah. And I and I feel like if you start attaching cool new game mechanics and two new game blocks or existing game mechanics to Minecraft uh, ab abandoned mine shafts, then I think that's a good a good starting point would be my you know kind of like impressions yeah it's it's the kind of thing that you can with the the vein of calcite idea you can see them starting to add already in the case of certain geological features signifying okay there's a huge vein of copper here i i like the fact that they've now started experimenting with more subtle ways of informing the player the landscape mm -hmm. around you is telling you where to go and yeah. that is something that is probably fairly difficult to do with a procedurally generated world but we've already seen them add things like shipwrecks that can now give you signals to where buried treasure is locally even dolphins taking you to shipwrecks in the first place is, is another example of the game leading the player around in more organic ways than just giving you a objective marker like other games tend to do and saying okay go there first and following such a linear path and i think to early game players the game will still have enough mystery and wonder and allow for enough random exploration that eventually you'll start to see a few of these patterns, but they won't necessarily become the kind of thing that players can just farm out. You know, you'll still run out of those markers in locations and have to go further and further afield. And it also reduces people's reliance on things which are effectively spoilers for content in your world like you know witch hut locators and and things like that mm -hmm. um i think some of these things you can just go to because they're on the surface in a specific biome um 
desert temples were my other example. They're large. They only spawn in one biome. Um, shipwrecks are plentiful enough. Uh, you can probably imagine that there will be enough witch huts in a swamp that you'll be able to find at least one if you run into a swamp or two. And I, yeah, I think there are some structures that don't necessarily need uh, the player to be guided to them because they are they are signposts in and of themselves and it's what you do with it afterwards yeah. that really matters but i do think there are a couple of uh a couple of other things that could maybe and even if it extends to structures that might be added in future having a way to signpost them the way azalea trees do for lush caves is going to be a uh, a must-have i think because it, it allows the player's experience to be guided without having to hold their hand through everything and I think in that light, something that is maybe not a signpost, but a breadcrumb could also be really interesting. And I know you've brought this up before on the show, but in terms of like the end of the Caves and Cliffs update, when we're into the 118 stuff with the world gen, and that includes mountains, uh, which are supposed to be very rare, it would be really neat if you could do something as simple as following a river. Uh, now, Minecraft water at present doesn't necessarily flow, but uh, if you chose to follow a river, maybe it leads you to a lake or maybe it leads you to a mountain. And that's not saying all rivers lead to a mountain because, I mean, in de depending on how, how it goes in real life, whether it's an underwater spring or something like that, but very often a river will lead you to higher ground uh, or lower ground, I guess, depending on which way you're going. Uh, but in Minecraft, you could use rivers as like, hey, you see a river that looks like it's pretty long. If you follow it, you might find a mountain. And I think that would be... A cooler way to find a mountain than running or flying around randomly and hoping you see one. Yeah, maybe it's a river of a certain width because if the water has traveled that far, then it's eroded a larger channel over time. And sure, you know, I'm yeah. you know you know me, Joel. I'm I'm all in favor of making rivers more dynamic in this game. So you don't <laughs> you don't really have to sell me on that idea. I'm already there. But yeah, I I like that as considering that mountains are going to be rarer biomes. I think it'd be great to have some way of looking for them, but mountains are also going to loom large in the distance anyway so it is is yeah. going to be the case that if you're not near one then you will know about it um i think it's interesting though to see what else the uh the the developers can do to bring in these more organic ways to experience things and i think i saw king b dogs wondering about this recently when it came to adding sort of quest givers into minecraft which is not necessarily an idea that they are workshopping right now but just kind of wondering how the player's experience can be guided if the player wants a guided experience and the difficulty of uh you know blending that with the sandbox gameplay minecraft is known for uh, i think we're about out of time for this discussion but if anyone has any ideas you know the email address and if you don't joel will have it for you in just a moment uh, that's going to be it for this episode of the spawn chunks you can find more information about the show and links to some of the stuff we've talked about today at thespawnchunks.com the music for the show was composed by me and the spawn chunks is proud to be a listener supported podcast if you get some value out of the show please consider putting in some value back in you can visit patreon.com slash thespawnchunks to join our community where pledging at any level gets you an invite to our patrons only discord chat and gets us closer to our next milestone goal of having a monthly minecraft audio hangout with our patrons where we can all just chat about what we've been up to in minecraft that week we are currently at 253 patrons, which is up six from last week and three above our previous best. So thank you so much to everybody who has joined up in the last week or so. And special thanks go out to our content engineers, General Pattern 82, Greener Canuck, Hunter 555, Jumbo Sale, and Yitz for your support on this episode. 
Sharing the podcast with your friends is the easiest way to support the show. You can find us at The Spun Chunks on Twitter and Instagram. Personal recommendations, however, are the best way to share the podcast. Just poke a friend in the arm from a safe distance, tell them about The Spawn Chunks and where they can go to listen, including locations like iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and YouTube, really wherever you can find a podcast. And if you want to email the show, that email address is spawnchunkmail at gmail.com. Please use that one. The RSS feed is linked on the spawnchunks.com. And the patron-only RSS feed is on the Patreon page. That's where you can listen to the Render Distance, the extended version of the podcast. My name is Johnny, but online I go by Pixelriffs. You can find most of what I do at youtube.com slash Pixelriffs, where I attempt to make sense of this crazy and wonderful game in a series called The Minecraft Survival Guide. I also stream three days a week on Twitch, where I'm doing behind-the-scenes work for The Survival Guide and also playing with my friends on the Don't Die SMP this month. I'm also the voice of the unofficial Hermitcraft recap, which you can find through a quick YouTube search. Been doing that for five years now, if you can believe that uh, aside from that i'm at pixel on both twitter and instagram joel where can people find you online everything i'm doing online including my illustration and design portfolio is at joelduggan.com you can listen to the citadel cafe my other podcast about sci-fi and fantasy entertainment at the citadelcafe.com and you can follow me on social media at joel duggan as well as twitch same name and it's just a lot of minecraft these days which is good uh snapshot stuff citadel stuff a lot of stuff. Thanks for visiting the Spawn Chunks. The world outside is infinite, and we think that's a sign. <laughs> <laughs>